Have you ever wondered what it takes to build a successful business in the Australian property industry? Well, you've come to the right place. Welcome to Business and Property Development, a monthly podcast in which industry leaders share their insights and experience with host Harry Karadimus. Hello and welcome to Business and Property Development. This month, I'm thrilled to share a conversation I recorded with John Fung, Chief Revenue Officer at Domain Group. In this conversation, John shares his career journey and experiences through some of the world's most innovative companies, including McKinsey, Google, Uber, and now Domain Group. You'll get a glimpse of how John's audacious mindset, adaptability, and focus on learning have enabled him to take on various leadership roles, emphasizing the significance of building high-performance teams and making a positive impact on both for-profit and non-for-profit environments. We also touch on the state of construction and development in Sydney, as well as the way technology is impacting the real estate industry, with a particular emphasis on how Domain Group enables people on both sides of the purchasing equation make more informed and astute decisions. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with John Fung. John, welcome to the podcast. It's so great to have you with me today. Thanks, Harry. It's a pleasure to be on. I've been very much looking forward to this conversation. Uh, You've got a fantastic career journey through some of the world's most innovative and progressive companies, companies like McKinsey, Google, Uber, and now Domain Group. So I'm looking forward to discussing the journey that you've been on. Thank you. I'd also like to touch on a couple of other key themes. Firstly, how you've developed as a leader throughout your roles in these companies, along with your insights into what it takes to build high-performance teams, which in turn build businesses. And secondly, given your position now as Chief Revenue Officer at Domain Group to gain your insight into the real estate market as you see it today with a particular bent on developments, but also the way in which technology is being brought into it and how technology is changing real estate. So before we get stuck into all this, I'd like to ask you a couple of brief questions to set the scene. And yeah, go for it. You. So if you can tell me where were you born and where did you grow up? I was born actually not too far from here. I was born in Wurunga and I grew up around there. I grew up in Gordon and St. Ives. It's a very, very wonderful place to grow up. My, uh, my parents had migrated. My mum's from Hong Kong. My dad's from Malaysia. They were migrated here in the 70s before me and my sister were born. So we had the privilege of of always growing up in Australia in the 80s and 90s. What did you want to study post-schooling? Actually, when I was younger, when I was in my mid-teens, I had a real calling to either go into... I would say non-profit or ministry. I was really involved in church, particularly when I was growing up. I loved leading and serving. I remember there was a very clear moment when I was about 16 where I had a conviction of like, oh, I don't know if I want to be in an office or business my whole life. You know, I really want to be out in the mission field or out in the streets or you know, really helping people. At that time, I, I actually seriously considered dropping out of school and going into seminary or overseas or, or something like that. And, and I think at the time, my dad, who was full of wisdom on this, said, look, John, I mean, that's a cool idea, but you know, why don't you speak to some people, get some wisdom about it? And a lot of their counsel was, look, you're young. You know, you want to maintain your options. You want to understand what the world is. And so why don't you go and finish your studies, get your degree, get some work experience, see what that means for you. I went and did that. I really enjoyed business and economics and technology. They were my passions. And I had the chance to study kind of a a business and information systems, a technology degree at University of New South Wales. And it was a kind of degree that was a co-op. You got to do some work. You got to do some studies. It was actually very, very helpful in getting that experience. But by the end of it, I remember I'd said, great, I've kind of come to the end of, of this experience. Surely now it's time to go and, you know, do my thing, do my nonprofit thing or do my church thing. And I had a very strong conviction that actually there was a lot more to learn, that what a lot of these places needed, churches and nonprofits, 
the skill set that a lot of the people who I had volunteered with over that last decade, because I'd volunteered a lot at church and run a lot of charity things and things like that, a lot of these places are full of people with a lot of passion, a lot of desire to help people, but they lack the organizational skills to run a company. And inevitably, they'd burn out. They'd make some hiring mistake or they'd, that the business would be insolvent or they'd, they'd burn out because they didn't have balance with their family. And these were people who I'd worked very closely with over the previous, previous decade. And I think I became very convicted, I was in my early 20s by this time, that if I really want to make a difference in the world, I want to learn a set of organizational skills from the best places in the world and then be able to use that both in a for-profit environment but a non-profit or a church environment. And I think that's probably in the last 20 years of my life. You know, really pursuing that, developing leadership as a skill set and finding ways to bring that into passions outside of, of the for-profit world. And even as a teenager, that vision uh, was very much uh, a part of my calling and my conviction. I'd like to understand, how did you develop just that know that that's what you wanted to do and to understand that calling? I think if I, the way I state it now in hindsight yeah. probably sounds more put together than the, really the journey reflects. So if I go back to when I'm 16, if you ask me, John, what do you want to do when you grow up? I want to be the pastor of a church. That's it. I would have defined that calling as a destination. And it would have sounded very confident, you know, and I think that's part of like how we puff ourselves up a little. We, we look for certainty in a world full of volatility. But I think as I grew older, as I, you know, traveled the world and learned from other people, I began to view my calling less as a destination. I will be this job in this country at this time doing this. And more as a set of skills and experiences. So what am I called to be now? Am I called to be a pastor? Am I called to be a leader? Am I called to be a husband? Like it's like maybe all the above. But even if I get there, it doesn't mean I'll stay there. Because no longer is calling a destination. It's a set of skills. That skills around leadership and serving people. That is my calling. And how that looks like might look very different in different chapters of my life. Like right now, we have a bunch of young kids. And my life is pretty simple. There's work and there's family and that's it. If we can get out and see friends every now and then or do some volunteering, like that's once in a blue moon. It's different, but it will not always be this way. It'll be different the next season. It was different in the last season. So that's how, you know, I don't want to misrepresent my certainty because I think if you'd asked me what I'd be doing now, I didn't think I'd be doing what I'm doing now, you know, 30 years ago. But actually that notion of being a leader and exercising that leadership skill set to serve people in the marketplace and in nonprofit. I guess that is what I thought I'd be doing, and I'm glad to be doing it right now. And that hasn't actually changed. It's just it's the skills that just get applied to where you are at that point in time and what you're. You That's know, right. What you're doing, yeah. It's where is the intersection of where will I be able to use the gifts that I have, and refine and learn more gifts along that spectrum. I get to lead 500 amazing people across Australasia in real estate. That's amazing. It's a, it's a ton of fun. And for me, it's great because I get to see the impact of the skills I've learned over the past three decades. But it also is a place where I'm learning. I'm getting better. I'm being pushed, right? And that's, if I think through the, the arc of my life, which I know we'll talk through, that's probably the single defining logic of what has driven my decision making. If we can just take a step back and have a look at some of those decisions and journeys that you've made along the way. My understanding is you've managed to get a role at McKinsey, which that's is right. an incredible organization in, in itself. What kind of skills were you learning there? You know, what was the role? What were you doing at that point in time? You know, this is my, my first official job out of college that wasn't an internship. My mindset at the time was, wow, I, I want to keep learning about leadership. I'm really enjoying business. I still feel I want to make a difference in nonprofit and church, and I can do so on the side, but I'm, I'm not ready to take the jump anymore. And when you are that 22-year-old just out of college and you're looking for that kind of like, how do I develop leadership experience? Consulting is unbelievable. You go to these different companies, you're dealing with very senior people. There's a lot of expectation because you are quite expensive and the customers expect you to do a lot of value. 
but you're developing skills across different industries and different functions of those industries, and you're working with just some of the world's most amazing people. And the way a consultant to use is it's, it's additional help mm-hmm. that has a lot of expertise and experience. A lot of my early work was, was brought in to help a big bank improve their customer service scores. You know, it, it brought in to help that same bank improve how their staff feel about working, their engagement. The next week, you do that for six weeks and you whizzed off to a big telecommunications company that's trying to improve how quickly they can get back to complaints because that's something that's driving their, their loss of market share. Course of two years, I would have worked at four or five different customers, 10 or 15 different projects with 30 or 40 different amazing people from all around the world because companies like McKinsey, they're global. Half the Sydney office was from overseas. There were people who were coming or had migrated that were here for a season. You're 22 years old, you're soaking up like a sponge. It's an amazing experience. Yeah. So I feel extremely privileged to have had that. And, and the key skill set is you're learning a bunch of experiences about this industry, this function, sales, customer support. But what you're really learning is a generalized skill set in problem solving. If you had to define like what's the one thing McKinsey does, it's problem solving at, at the highest levels of, with clients. And that's what you learn. I remember the first day I had my onboarding in Korea and they brought 20 of us. You know, it's our first job after university or, or business school. And you basically get taught the, the McKinsey seven steps of problem solving. And I still use it today. You know, like understanding the issue, breaking it down, prioritizing. It's an amazing set of skills that then become part of your, your general management skills. Moving on from McKinsey, so you obviously developed that skill set for two years and then understand you've had a calling to go abroad and actually get to incorporate you know, your skill set into aid. So you went to Mozambique. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the, yeah. the way that McKinsey works is, particularly if you're joining after undergraduate, you, they encourage you to work for a few years and then go and apply to do some postgraduate study and in some ways take a bit of a career break of sorts. And so what I had done is I'd sent off my applications to American business schools, uh, and then I want to volunteer a little in Africa. McKinsey had this program with the U.S. government where you can volunteer you know, in developing countries around the world, working for the U.S. Agency for International Development or TechnoServe as the subcontractor. And so what happens, I, I plan to go for five or six weeks. I did a bunch of different projects, like helping some different entrepreneurs do business plans and things like that. It was really interesting. But as I stayed there, and part, for me, it was partly to help out, partly to have, do a different pace and also to test out what it would be like to work in the nonprofit sphere. And as I got into that, there was a lot of needs in Mozambique at the time the US government was trying to fulfill. And they asked me to stay longer. I ended up staying six months uh, in my first stint there and really do some work on the, on the local Mozambican poultry industry. Uh, so that ended up being, you know, most of my 2005 was just an amazing experience. How did you find that? See, leaving Australia, going <laughs> to another country completely out of, out of routine, out of everything. What were some of the highlights for or some of the challenges that you faced? You know, it's funny being much older now and having made a big move back to Australia two years ago. When you are younger, it is so much easier to be mobile. For me, you know, I'd lived at home my whole life, lived on the North Shore of Sydney. Having a chance to pack up and go around the halfway around the world and not know a soul was incredible. There were probably parts of it that were a little scary. I remember, you know, seeing my African cabin like one night just watching reruns of Anchorman on my laptop, just like, you know, keep myself company thinking, wow, this kind of feels a little lonely. But it's an incredible experience, particularly being an Australian overseas. Everyone loves Australians. There's Aussies all over the world and then backpacker hostels. And, and particularly when you get to do something like this program that's set up where you get to use your skill set in a place that really values it. I mean, consulting is useful, I think, anywhere. But actually, if you're going like to a place like Africa, where most of the people there have no experience in these things, and you can really use it to make a big difference to help someone build a business plan or get funding... It's very gratifying. It really, it really helped me understand how much value there is I could add to the world. 
you know, and, and I think that's something that we don't take for granted because in the up and down of, of everyday work life, you know, we have wins, we have losses, we move on. But there it was great to make a difference and start to experience the highs and lows of nonprofit life. And uh, it, was, it was just incredible. So where did it take you after Mozambique? I understand you started looking at in, back in the tech sector and made your way into Google? Well, the, the big thing that happened was I'd set up my business school applications. I went to Africa, ended up staying six months. The reason it wasn't longer was actually because I, I was accepted into business school. So I, I got into Stanford University. That was the next two years of my life. Uh, and that, again, was this transformational leadership experience where it was an amazing place to learn and practice leadership. And when you do something like that, an, an MBA or a graduate degree, it is also the kind of thing that allows you to change the trajectory of your career. And for me, that, that helps signal the move from consulting into a full-time job within the technology space, as opposed to a consulting career. And what drew you to Google? You know, it, it wasn't actually that much Google itself. Google was, by that time, a reasonably large company. It was 10,000 people. It was the world's number one search engine. But it was still a very small company by today's standards. I wasn't looking to go to Google. I was looking for one thing. I was looking to get to Europe. I was studying in America, studying in, in Silicon Valley, where Stanford is. Australia had just qualified for the World Cup for the first time in 36 years. This is 2006. I wasn't a huge soccer fan, but, you know, like many Aussies, I just support everything. You know, just love watching all sports. And my sister was based in London at that time. Uh, she was working for eBay, and she had an apartment there. And so I was like, oh, my goodness, how can I get to Europe for the summer? I was basically looking for non-consulting, non-banking companies in Europe who were doing internships. And actually, Google was one of the very few companies doing that. I remember I went over there in 2005 on a, on a kind of a career trip. Uh, we jumped into a few different places. Google said, hey, like we're hiring here. The London office there was only 200 people. It was very, very small. Now it's thousands upon thousands of people. Let's, uh, let's give this a shot. I can stay in London with my sister. I can go to Germany and watch the World Cup games. So uh, that's how the summer of 2006 played out. I was very lucky to be at Google. Google is one of those places where particularly at that time when it was new and growing and forming and anything's possible, it wasn't such a mature company, that really allows you a lot of like cool career jumps. So, for example, I was there as an intern. I spent a few months as a marketing intern based in London. And as I discussed before, a lot of the reasons why people do internships, a lot of reasons why companies have internships, is that those people will come back a year later when they finish their studies. And I remember when I was doing my internship, I was helping them recruit you know, students, I developed this case study competition. And we were going to different universities and rolling it out. And I remember rolling it out, we're in Switzerland, and I sat next to a leader, a guy called Brennan. And we got talking about my calling. And at the end, I remember, I remember very vividly, we were riding a train to Switzerland because we we're visiting one of the business schools there. He turned to me and said, you know, John, like, why do you stay at Google after your internship? And why don't you come work for me? He was working in the search engine, leading a technical team that helped the search algorithm. What he was offering me was a chance to learn how to lead, a chance to lead a technical team of 10, 15 people, a chance to, to come to Ireland. I'd never lived in Ireland before. It was like something different. At that time, I really enjoyed living overseas. I didn't feel ready to come back to Australia. And so as I'm going down, we're talking about like, I'm just ticking all the boxes of like, wow, this would be a cool opportunity to exercise leadership in a new way and to learn leadership in a different way. And that enabled me to make a ton of mistakes very early and very quickly in my career. And you know that enabled me to make a bunch of jumps. You know, I was leading this technical operations team for two years. Again, like a side project that I've been working on uh, there, which was, I was organizing this presentation. They were trying to set up a sales team in Ireland to sell Google Cloud, things such as Gmail and, and Calendar and the paid version. They were looking for someone to run the sales team. And the sales team was like two people because it was a tiny business back then. Google had just started it two years before. And I had always wanted to get into sales because I thought, hey, sales would be cool. But I'd never done it. 
And the reality is I was probably never going to do it because I didn't want that insecurity of going back to like, oh, like you're back on a quota, you're carrying a commission, you have a low base pay, like it's, it's, it's risky. And when you're kind of an MBA and you've got these debts or things like that, you're like, going, oh, look, maybe I'm a bit above being a salesperson. So most MBAs never get into sales. And it just happened to be an opportunity where Google was looking for a sales leader who didn't necessarily need to have sales experience. And I had done my two years of technical operations management. Let's try something different. So the stars aligned. The way that I read this is that you've never been phased by getting into sectors or business units where you don't necessarily understand the technical component of it. It's the skill set that allows you to build those businesses, which is what you were happy to be undertaking. Places like McKinsey and Business School gives you kind of an, an audaciousness, an audacity. And that audacity is... You can learn anything, right, if you put your mind to it. That doesn't mean that you'll get the opportunity because typically people don't want to give you a job unless you have the relevant experience. There's a catch-22 of sorts. The cool thing about business school, the cool thing about places like Google or big companies, and we try and create that same environment domain, is that if you have a proven record, even if you don't have experience, they'll want to give you a go because they know you're top talent and you'll learn and you'll make a difference. And, and that's part of the reason why I ended up staying at Google for 13 years because we were able to keep finding those experiences. We're like, whoa, how do I get a chance to do that? Nowhere else in the world could I do this except here. No one else will give me a chance. Let's give it a few more years and, and do the next thing. There are things that are possible if you really want something. But I think so much of it's finding that compatible environment. I think that was the wonderful thing about Google, which is the longest place I've ever spent in my life, 13 years there, that they created an environment that brought together you know, really interesting talent and abundance of opportunities and created that internal marketplace. And that's what made it such a place where I, I didn't want to leave for, for so long. Can you pinpoint what some of those, some of those areas were? I think there's a few things about Google that make it quite special. It has quite a safe core business. So you think the genius of Google is they have the world's best search engine and they have the world's best way to monetize it. And as a result, even if Google made some bad decisions and made some investments that didn't work out, it's not like the business is going to go out of business. So there's like a, a buffer there, a margin of safety, which means that you can afford to put people in new and risk. You can afford to have risk on people and not work out some of the time because that won't crash the core business. I think secondly, there is a general mindset and a mantra about the company. I had a former manager and mentor of mine, a guy called Rich Rao, who's now the, the chief revenue officer at Intuit, which is a large company in the US. The phrase that he would use for the kind of person he would hire is the general athlete. Imagine the athletics team, right? You've got some people who are sprinters, who are long distance runners and who are shot putters, right? You've got a whole gamut of different shapes and sizes and abilities. So you could choose someone who's like that, like really good at doing hurdles. Or you could choose someone who's a general athlete, someone who, who can do a range, who's got strength and speed and may not be the best at any given thing, but is good at a range of things and can adapt. When I think about him as a leader and the kind of leaders that he surrounded himself with, he looked for general athletes. People who are that general leadership skill set, that general growth mindset, you know, that general set of problem-solving smarts. You learn a place like consulting or business school. The way that Google was structured then favored the general athletes. There were not many limitations on what kind of job you could go for. There were not many things you couldn't learn on the job. The limitation was your mindset, your ability to learn, your general intelligence, your ability to manage people. And I think you need a few of those factors. So Google had that, that margin of safety, that buffer. It had a mindset of the general athlete. The fact it was growing also helped. They were always trying to hire people. Like the workforce grew like 10, 20% every year while I was there, right? Which just means that op opportunities open up, right? And they're going to have to take some bets if they want to fill the positions they have. What would you say some of those experiences were that you know, really allowed you to have a go and to learn from some of those experiences to enable you to take those really rapid steps into mm. high leadership positions? Let me touch on, on two that, that come to mind. The first one is around hiring. If you think about the difference between being a non-manager to a manager, to being a manager of managers, to being a director or a CEO or something like that, 
when you are by yourself, when you don't have any reportees, you are as good as the work you do. You do good work, great. You do bad work, fine. When you're managing a team, say you're managing a team of five people, your, your impact on the total output of the team has gone from 100% to like 16.6%. You are one of six people who are doing the work. So if you do really great work, uh, then maybe that team delivers 110%. If you do really bad work, maybe that team delivers 85%, right? So you're now one of a team. And right now, like I'm managing 500 people, right? So literally the effort that I put in accounts for less than 1% of the output of the business. Right? I could work 100 hours a week. I could totally kill myself. It would make very little difference to the whole scheme of things, right, in terms of the total amount of output. Now, obviously, in my position, I have an outsized influence. But the most important thing you can do as you scale as a manager is to get good at hiring. The most important thing. Because if you hire amazing people, then kind of everything takes care of itself. Your job is then just to retain them and make sure they're getting the career opportunities so they stick around. And for me, I learned this in very painful ways by making bad hires. I never appreciated, and I still learn in some ways the same lesson, that because the difference between a bad, a good, and a great hire is so big, there is rationally probably not enough time you could put into the hiring experience. Yeah, you could say, oh my goodness, all these interviews, what am I going to do? Oh, do I have to do reference checks? You get dragged along by the recruiter who's helping you and think, like, what's the least amount I have to do to get the hire? But once you have that aha moment of, whoa, 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 if I can get a really great person, it'll make my life five times easier than if I get an okay person, which will be five times better than if I get a bad person you know, for that job. When I say bad, I mean a bad fit. I mean, everyone, has, everyone can be a, a superstar if they're, if they're in the right position. Once you start to realize that, you start to spend a lot more time on hiring. And the way you realize that is by making a lot of bad hires, and the way you realize that you need to be, you need to really stay close to people's performance and help them understand how they're going is when you keep someone who's not a good fit for too long. That's something very, very painful. That is actually an amazing piece of advice. So, duly <laughs> <really> noted. <laughs> I'd say the other one that comes to mind is around people management. People management is a skill. It's a skill that you can work on, you can be good on, you can be bad on. It's a skill that has massive consequences. One of the cool things about Google is that they really try and attach consequences to actions. So, for example, if you're a people manager, they run a survey twice a year. It's a confidential survey where you give feedback about the company and feedback on your manager. There's a bunch of scores, and they, they had this really interesting project called Project Oxygen, where they found the eight attributes of great teams, and they correlate that to the questions in the survey. And what they've done is, when that team fills out the survey about you, like, hey, my boss makes me feel psychologically safe. We've had a career conversation the last six months. Depending on your scores, you'll effectively get a ranking of like you're a top quartile manager, you're a bottom quartile manager, not by kind of business results, but by kind of the how, by the, your manager skill set. And one of the things, one of the very painful lessons I learned, this is, you know, a decade ago now, was I was up for promotion. I was potentially going to be one of the, the youngest directors at Google. What happened was I got a bottom quartile, you know, manager feedback survey. And I was a bit shocked, right? Because I thought, hey, look, I'm a good manager. But the reality was I was very focused on business outcomes. I had a lot of problems to solve. And I was not prioritizing the bread and butter of, am I having a regular one to one on my team each week? Am I supporting them? Am I listening to them? Do they feel that I've got their back? And as a result, I was not promoted. You know, and it was a very stern conversation and, and I started to question my future there. And the, the point that Google was making, this is such a big deal that if you're good at everything else, if you're not good at people management, you can't be successful at this level here. It was a very powerful message and it really stuck with me. Since then, people management has been a top priority for me. I love looking at those survey results. I love getting that feedback, particularly an honest feedback from my team. Because I know like, if I want to manage great people in a great company, great people have options. If they're not being looked after, there's a hundred other places I can go. They're the customer, not me, when it comes to the manager relationship. Let's move on to Uber. So you moved on from Google. Yeah. 13 odd years, a long time. Long time. What prompted the change? What happened? You know, I think at, at Google, I talked about how every few years I'd have a different job. 
started off in marketing as an intern and then running a technical team as a manager and then running the small sales team. And that sales team grew from two people to 50 people over the course of a few years. Then taking a bunch of global roles, moving from Europe to Silicon Valley. You know, I was very lucky that every two years something would change. And so it happened that eventually that came to a stop. You stay at a company so long as it serves your mutual interests. The company should feel really lucky to have you and you should feel really lucky to be in that position, right? And I think at Google, that was the case for 13 years. And at the end of it, what basically happened was effectively there was a, quite a senior role that I felt that I would be the right person to have. There wasn't the same feeling within Google that I was the best person for that job, which again is totally valid. And the job that they were happy for me to do, I came to the conclusion that was not enough learning for me. It was still a great place, amazing company. It was about that time, this is in, in 2019, that I, you know, I began to at least be open to calls from other folks. And one of my people I've worked with at Google uh, had moved to Uber. Uh, Uber was, was 2019. Uber had still been around for 10 years. By this time, it was very large. It was the number one rideshare in the world. It was still a much smaller company than it is today. And they had started the part of Uber called Uber for Business. And Uber for Business was this whole idea of people start off using Uber for their personal life, but a lot of people were using Uber for business travel. Instead of just offering exactly the same product to business travelers, Uber was making a slightly different product. You know, they allowed people to integrate with their expense systems and put in company controls. Like you can ride home from this location after seven o'clock and the company will pay for it. They're not huge things, but they're things that really make reduce friction for, for business travelers. I was very fortunate that a lot of my former colleagues at Google, uh, well, there's about three or four of them, had moved to work at Uber, in particular that Uber for Business area. And they were looking for someone to run global account management and later customer engineering. And it turns out the skill set that I had in running the partner account management at Google for a long time was really, really well suited. It was very, very similar to the, the business model of Uber. And Uber is a, a company that actually has very similar values, very similar feel, very similar attitudes about people to Google. It's one of those things where it was kind of the right place at the right time where I was open to opportunities and they were looking for someone and, and it was just a, a much better fit for me. So that's why I ended up making the move. What were you responsible for when you made the jump? So yeah. obviously new business unit. So it was a global responsibility. Yeah. Uh, so I had teams in Australia and in South America, all that kind of stuff. By that time, there were over 100,000 companies who were using Uber for business purposes. And they had installed the feature that allowed them to do that. And so I was responsible for those accounts and making sure that they were using Uber for business as much as possible. Uh, first for rides. And then when the pandemic hit, actually for, for food delivery it became like a massive business to us. And then later on, as we grew that team, we started the customer engineering team because some of these big companies, actually consulting companies mostly, had particular ways they wanted to integrate with their company apps. And so we started a customer engineering team uh, whose job it was to help the Uber for Business solution work with that company's particular apps for, for very, very large companies. So one of the things I've had a lot of experience in in sales is account management. Think of sales in two broad categories. Someone goes and opens the account. They are, no, they are not using Uber or Google, and one day they become a user. But then after that point in time, there's a lot of things that have to happen to keep that person a user and to have them not churn, right? So you need to have like a really great installation implementation experience. For example, if somebody signs up for a trial, you can judge their likelihood of staying on the trial or becoming a paid user within actually the first 48 hours. And it's basically, do they take steps to actually use the product? Because most people sign up and they just don't use it. And not because they don't want to. If they didn't want to, they wouldn't have signed up. But because they get busy, they get distracted. So a lot of the skill of great account management starts the moment that someone signs up. How do you make sure they're using the product in it, seeing the benefits, feeling the love, connecting with friends as soon as possible? But then secondly, a lot of it's about the relationship you have with the company. What happens when something goes wrong? What happens when you have a support query? What happens if you just want a new feature? What happens if you just want to understand what the new features have come on board and no one's good there to explain it to you? So finding out that right 
human support and what can be done by non-humans, by videos, by email, things like that, to keep a customer happy, engaged, satisfied with the product. That's a lot of the skill of the account manager. And that's primarily what I was doing at Google, what I'm doing at Domain, and what Uber brought me in to bring that science to that work. You touched on the pandemic and the way that Uber and Uber for Business was being used during the pandemic, but what I'd also like to touch on is how your leadership skill set changed going from a place where everyone was in an office versus going remote and then being able to lead a team in a remote setting, being able to not micromanage, but also then be able to care for their well-being and to be really on top of your team and make sure that they're doing their best work. How did the pandemic change the way you we're leading. The pandemic was a very challenging time for probably every business. I think Uber felt it quite profoundly. Literally, the business went down by 99% overnight and stayed there for a while. You had a few different issues going on, right? You had this, not, not even just from a, a financial point of view, just a personal health and safety point of view. Are my parents going to be okay? Are we going to be okay? Everyone's going through this kind of personal crisis of sorts. And But then from a business point of view, I think Uber had this crisis of, oh, like, what do we do? What's our business model now? Because no one wants to take any rides and no one wants to give rides. So the entire thing broke down overnight. Which then leads to this financial crisis of like, well, if the company's not making any money, how are we going to have jobs? And indeed, what happened, as with many companies, there was a pretty material amount of layoffs. I mean, Google reported it was in the realm of 30 or 40 percent. You know, that happened later that year. And similar companies like Airbnb or other companies went through things such that nature. And I remember I probably have never been as frightened in my life as I have at the start of the pandemic. You probably didn't have to be so frantic about it. Most people were able to stay safe, the vast majority of people. But at the time, you just didn't know what you didn't know. And so you go through this own personal journey whilst trying to figure out what it means for your family, figure out what it means for your team. So I think in answer to the question, like, what did leadership look like? I think the first thing was giving myself space to process, mourn, freak out, and work through things. As leaders, we try and be very brave and very stoic. And the, the, some of that facade is important. But ultimately, if you can't look after yourself and your family, what can you do? You can't, can't lead help at work. Others. Yeah, you can't you can't be composed, you can't lead at work. Like so then number one, like figuring out and for me that was a combination of just try not to work as much, just trying to get outside with what we we're allowed to do, do exercise, figure out those new rhythms. I started calling my family back at home in Australia at the time. I was living in Silicon Valley at this time. Use that opportunity to connect with people, speak to friends I hadn't spoken to. So I think for me as a leader for my team, a lot of what I was really trying to do is help people know that you care before talking about work. I had something, uh, it was an adaptation of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, uh, which is like, you know, you look after physical needs, emotional needs, before you think about things such as self-actualization. And for me, it was a pyramid that I put up in front of the team and say, hey, guys, here's what we're doing here. And we want to make sure you're safe, right? We want to make sure that you have emotional help. We had a counseling service and things like that people would turn out to. We want to make sure that if you need to take time off, you can, like, you can look after family, let's figure out what the working arrangement is. So we wanted to make sure that people knew that their physical, emotional, and mental health needs were looked after first. And yes, then we need to brainstorm, okay, what do we do for business? And that ended up us pivoting from rideshare into food delivery. It was very small at the time and exploded for us. But I think that was the mantra to our team, and that's what leadership looked at the time. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. People don't care about your actions. They don't want you to speak to their head. They want you to speak to their heart first. And that's something which we had the chance to the pandemic through connections in those ways. I'd like to jump on to returning home, living in Silicon Valley, living in, in Europe. What brought you home and here to Domain? So, you know, I, I talked to these big companies like Google and Uber a lot. And there is this continuing dance we are trying to find. Am I in a place where I feel I'm learning a lot and giving a lot? And am I in a place where the company really values me? The thing about any company is that, that when that works well, it's great. Like right now, like I love my job. I feel like I had a ton of value for the company. I feel like I'm learning a lot. And that's how I felt most of my career. But it doesn't take much to change that. The wind blows a different way and 
That's it. And I talked about my experience at Google where after 13 years, the leadership at that time did not have the same view of what I could do as I did of myself. And that was the time to leave. And again, I'm not saying it's their fault or they were wrong. I'm just saying it's a question of fit. And that's basically what happened at Uber. Two years went by, the person who hired me and, and had structured the team a certain way, he left and they brought someone who was also amazing, absolutely amazing. And they had a different vision for how the team was to be structured. You know, they gave me a heads up and said, hey, look, you know, you're in this global role looking after all the accounts globally and looking after the engineers globally. And this is not necessarily how I want to structure the business. I was very fortunate there were opportunities to stay at Uber that would have been not quite the same thing as what I was doing. But again, my judgment is, is that the highest contribution I could have? Uh, there's a guy called Greg McEwen, went to school at the same time as me at Stanford, and he wrote this, writes this book called Essentialism. And essentialism is, is, is based on this belief that you should only do what is essential. And the way you come to what's essential is you ask the question, is this the highest use of my skills and abilities? Only I can do or no one can do better than me. And that could be anything. That could be managing, that could be playing music, that could be cleaning. There are things that you are really good at doing that intersection between what the world needs and what you can bring. Due to that leadership change at, at Uber, that was disrupted because what I wanted to do was no longer wanted by the company and that's okay. And so that started in me and my family, this like, okay, well, we like it here, let's look for the next gig and reach out to the network and having meetings. And the cool thing was, this is you know, uh, in you know, mid-2021, there are a lot of really great opportunities around. But I thought, hey, let's look in Silicon Valley, but let's also look back in Sydney. You know, my family were here, what do we like to spend some years in Sydney? And as we went through that process, it turned out there were a lot of really cool opportunities in Sydney that actually, particularly with someone of my skill set with these global experiences and you know, these Silicon Valley style companies, a lot of domestic Australian companies were looking to bring that into their business. I'm relatively unique here in terms of my, my background. I'm, I'm not that unique in Silicon Valley. And as we asked that question, like, where would we like to be as a family? It turned out that, you know, it'd be cool to give Australia some time and connect with my family here and the cousins and experience the Australian way of life. So in the end, I was very fortunate to have a number of really good job offers in Australia, uh, in Sydney and, and in, um, in, uh, in Silicon Valley. And we decided to come back and, and Domain at the time were looking for a head of sales, a chief revenue officer. Uh, and Domain was just a, an amazing fit. A technology company, really a brand name, you know, in Australia that has really large impact on the property industry. A great brand but also a chance for me to give my skills in a different way. I'd never been reporting to the CEO before. I'd never been speaking to the board of a public listed company. And at Google and Uber, there was, even though I was managing large teams, you know, I was levels beneath the CEO. That different kind of experience was something where just a really wonderful intersection of what I wanted to do, what I felt I could bring to the world, and what Domain needed at the time. Can we talk about some of the key areas that you're responsible for and yeah. what you're looking to build up within the Domain yeah. sphere and how technology is coming into the real estate space? And So Domain has about... A thousand employees spread throughout Australasia, mostly Australia, but a pretty large presence in the Philippines. What Domain is trying to do, we are one of Australasia's largest real estate portals. So we bring together an audience of people. A third of Australia's population use Domain every month. It's a very, very large number, around 8 million people, including the roughly 500,000 people who are looking for a house. We create a combination of an app, website, and then interesting news articles and research that draw those people in. We then monetize that business by when people go to sell their house, they will consider using domain and go, well, like I want to reach those 8 million people, particularly the people in my area. I will pay money to be on domain's app. So when someone searches this area with this criteria, I will show up. Right? And the way that generally happens is through real estate agents. The real estate agent is the one when you're going to sell your house. Go, Great. Here is how much you need to spend on marketing. You need to use domain. You need to have the signboard. You need to have this print advertisement. Uh, it'll cost you a few thousand dollars. And that's how we're going to sell your house in the next four weeks before the auction. 
And so that's how houses are sold, and domain plays a really important role. The most important people in that transaction are actually the real estate agents. They're the people bringing the buyer and the seller together with people like Domain. And so my responsibility is I'm responsible for the revenue number, roughly about $400 million in revenue, the projections for next year. That is what the external market looks at in terms of, okay, here's a number. We estimate Domain will do $400 million. John, you're responsible for delivering that. The way we deliver that is we help real estate agents recommend our product. So most of my team are people who deal with real estate agents. We call them account partners, helping real estate agents understand what domain can do, where it's effective, figure out the right domain products to use. Most of this is residential, but about a third of our business is commercial for developers, for commercial real estate. And then we have a few hundred person strong customer support team. This is based in Australia and in in the Philippines as well. So once you're using domain products, if you have a problem or you need to change something, these help you get you rapid help and rapid resolution. So ultimately, I'm responsible for delivering that number for domain, that revenue number, primarily through selling domains listing products up here on the app. We have some other really interesting products that we sell to real estate agents as well to help them save time. We help real estate agents use our products and then we service them both through account partners who are their partners as well as through customer support. I'd like to understand a bit more about technology in, in real estate. So obviously there, there are the portals, but then what sort of changes have coming about in the real estate industry and, and the integration of technology on these platforms and just in general? Let me talk about two different sides. So imagine with domain There's two technological folks we have. There is the experience of finding a house, of using the app. And then there's other stuff we do for real estate agents, which I'll talk about. So if you have the app, the app has actually changed a lot the past decade. You think about how apps have changed in general. Some of the things are, they're a lot more interactive. So in the beginning, it was basically just newspaper classifieds in an app. But now it rolls out a map. And that map isn't just like a street directory. That map changes as you go into it. It'll highlight things that you like based on your past experience it might flash up interesting piece of information about the, the suburbs you're looking at. So think of like how Google Maps has evolved. That has really changed a lot of apps such as Airbnb, such as Domain, to make it a more enjoyable experience, a more beautiful experience, a more educational experience. And now with the advent of artificial intelligence, really think like how do we go from like, oh, like I need, these are my search parameters, tap, 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 give me results, to kind of like, hey, based on what we know about you, here are some three or four ideas. Right, that you might look at. How do you go from reactive to proactive? Right, I think that's a, a lot of what we are really heavily focused on, making a beautiful, simple, easy experience. So we look for a house, it's stressful enough as it is, how do we make it as beautiful and as fun as possible? So that's kind of one set of technological advances. The other side is on the real estate agent side. So I mentioned this before, but one of the visions of Domain is to help real estate agents be twice as effective in half the time. So what does a real estate agent spend time doing? What do, what do great real estate agents do? Well, they do lots of research. They have a lot of paperwork to do because selling a house is a lot of paperwork. They're always trying to find the next house who could sell. So these are some of the needs. If you're a real estate agent, you're trying to make commission, this is what you do. What Domain has done is, or partner with a bunch of products that help real estate agents do all those things better in half the time. So for example, we have a product called Price Finder, and that has a database on almost every house in Australia. If you're a real estate agent and someone you're trying to help sell someone's the house, someone's house, you probably want to tell them about four or five houses in the area that were a similar price that sold recently. And Price Finder lets you do that research. It produces this beautiful PDF, 20 pages, all the research, photos, yeah. give it to your customer, right? So saving, helping real estate agents be twice effective in half the time. We have a product called Real-Time Agent, which is a bit like DocuSign. So there's loads of paperwork and it's different by state to fill the house, to sell the house. What this does is you plug in a bunch of information and it populates all those legal documents for you. 
And so instead of having to like print out a whole lot of things and type write a whole lot of things, it does a press of a button. And furthermore, you can then do the contracts on an iPad. You can bring the iPad, you only bring paper, they approve it, and then you can do the approvals you know, from your lounge room late at night. It comes through, seller says yes, buyer says yes, great. Press enter, go, it's done. Right, so these are the kind of products where we're investing in. They're, they're different to the main product, which is that listings product, you know, trying to help people find and, and sell a house. This is about making real estate agents' lives better because they are, in some ways, Domain's main customer. We are trying to help them help their end customer, but also help their office run more efficiently, help them have more time to either sell more or, or have more leisure time. Yeah, it's a couple of layers deep, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And I think the technology, both in terms of artificial intelligence to make that user experience better, but also all the different things we're bringing in to help a real estate agent do their job faster and better, that's where I think technology is going. It's ultimately about saving time. Uh, and that's, uh, that's where we think we have an important role to play in the industry. We talk about some of the uh, insights into real estate at the moment. There's just some incredible things going on. Just jotted down some points, just thinking about it last night. Uh, we've got high interest rates, low stock, <laughs> high rents, rising asset prices, high cost of materials, increasing builder insolvencies if you're totally. you know, in construction. I have never seen anything quite so incongruous. And I would love to get your insights into what you guys see from, from the domain side. It could be from the point of view of someone buying a house, development sites that come in or come on board, and the fact, are they transacting? Uh, what are people's expectations? There's a whole lot of you know insights into the real estate industry, which I'd love to understand. If we can, say, take Sydney as a, sure. as a smaller market. So what are we seeing in Sydney right now from domain perspective? And domain gets a really cool vantage point because... Majority of houses in Australia are selling, they are listed on domain, right? So we have information about prices, features, what's selling, both right now, but also historically. And then we have these really interesting insights into buyer and seeker behavior. You know, we know who's buying, we know who's looking, and we even understand what those people are doing, right? So how long are they spending on an app? What are people doing in their general browsing behavior? You know, what can we tell them? Uh, how much time are they spending on domain relative to other places? So we have this really interesting treasure trove of data, which allows us to have a, a vantage point in the industry. And what you're seeing is the following. There is a lot of buyer activity. A lot of people looking for a house. That's measured by the number of people going to auctions, the number of people bidding in auctions is, is increased. Uh, the amount of search activity is, is very high. That's a little surprising because it's actually been, it hasn't been as hard to buy a house when it comes to affordability for a long time. 12 interest rate rises, effectively how much you can borrow has almost halved during that time, which has a real effect on, on what you can borrow. And also there's just general uncertainty. People don't feel flush with cash now, they're uncertain, will I still have my job? That's not usually a recipe for people getting the market. But they're being pushed into the market by two things. Number one is rentals are very high, which makes buying more attractive. And I'll come to some of the reasons behind high rents. But then secondly, there's just no stock on the market. People are afraid of selling. And therefore, whenever something comes on, there's a lot of buyers per property. And that's one of the very strange reasons where almost always you see interest rates move in the opposite direction to house prices. Interest rates go up, house prices go down. And that's definitely what we saw the last 12 months. And now you've had Sydney rebound by 5%. It's made up you know, more than half the gains that were lost over that time. And that's because I think primarily supply is so low. Buyers are saying, well, probably when material interest rate rises, and then they'll come down, I'm going to get in. Very unusual. I think it's only happened once in the last you know, 40 years, this kind of inversion. I think the reason why we're seeing it is a bunch of factors, some outside our control and some inside our control. Uh, I think the biggest driver is global inflation and the global uncertainty. But it's not even just that inflation has gone up due to Ukraine-Russia war. Really, that's a labor market that has confounded economists, where you have these things, we have these 12 rate rises and similar numbers in the US and Europe. But unemployment is still below 4%. It's still at historical lows. 
the, the interest rate rises aren't having the full intended effect. They're bringing down inflation a little, but because most people still have jobs who want them, companies can still raise prices at a rate that's relatively high, even though their cost of borrowing has gone up, even though they've had to do layoffs themselves or you know they can't afford to do as many things themselves. So that resiliency of the economy, of employment, has been very, very surprising. I think that is being compounded in Australia and some other places similar around the world by a lack of supply due to a lack of development. And that is the thing that's, I think, driving a lot of rents. That is a, a problem that is not new. That's a problem that has been brewing for a generation, but now we're really feeling it because when we need the houses, and it was we, we've always needed the houses, but particularly over COVID, the amount of inbound migration was very, very low. Yep. This year, we're going to have a record migration, 400,000 people coming into Australia on a permanent basis, a, a close to zero increase in number of dwellings. What are you going to get? The only way you do that is rents are going to go up and housing stock supply is going to go down. And there's not that amount of new construction to justify it. So to me, the, the impact we're seeing, which is like in Sydney, house prices going up, no supply, but people still get into the market, really comes from those two major factors inflation that is sticky that's come from a economy that's surprisingly resilient and a generational problem when it comes to supply that is not being fixed anytime soon. The reality is it's not rational for our developers to develop at the usual pace right now. Even if you felt that you would have a lot of demand, which you would for developments, and even if you felt that you could demand a higher price, which you probably could, right, due to a lack of supply, the cost and uncertainty to get there through two things, the cost of inflation, you know, building materials up, as well as the, it's drove up the cost of labor. It's hard to get enough laborers, right? Because all those people are super in demand, you have to pay them more. And then secondly, of course, the cost of financing has obviously skyrocketed, right? And the volatility of that financing has meant that you're gonna pay more to service the debt you need to buy more expensive materials. It's very, very hard to make those numbers work. And so the rational thing for a lot of developers is to not develop, or to, to, to hold on to it. When you consider how difficult it is to make approvals nowadays, it's a recipe for, for stagnation. And that's exactly what we're seeing in our hardworking development community. And, and the problem is, it'll come back. It'll come back once the cost of financing goes down or inflation goes down. Is that next month, next quarter, next year? We don't know. And that'll start the flywheel again. And then, you know, in a few years' time, we'll have a lot of projects going. But you're going to have this, like, multi-year period we're in right now, which is like a desert for construction. You know, where if you've actually gotten something to market, you're amazing. And if you haven't, you're nervous and you're probably not going to get there. And unfortunately, the outcome of that is the undersupply is going to continue. And the rental, upwards pressure on rentals, and the pressure of people being able to afford a house and having to live further and further away from their parents or not live in Sydney or, or whatever it is, that's just going to continue. And a generation ago, you could buy a house after saving for a few years. Now I think it takes 10 to 20 years to save for a deposit, right? So you, most people can't get without the bank of mum and dad. You go forward a generation, it's going to be much worse. I dare say it's inevitable unless we have meaningful change in how we think about development. And I don't think that change is like, oh, developers are going to take more risks. Like, developers should not take risks that are not rational. This also comes down to me for, about policy. And I think it really starts with government or you, you reverse migration. That's the way. You reduce yeah. demand. You know, but I don't think that's, I don't think that's good. Uh, I, th- I think there are some things we can do, uh, which I'd love to see. Do you think it's always policy driven? I mean, for example, do you think you know, the average person should have their eyes on home ownership from an earlier age? For example, my parents, they put money aside from us from day dot. We had a deposit when we were 18. But that was a very conscious decision that my parents were making. And I'm, I'm, I'm not saying we didn't come from a wealthy background at all, but it was my parents kind of had to sacrifice, put money aside for us so that we had a small nest egg. And you know, I started really, really small when I built my first apartment, 195000 You You were the same. You, you had an early intro into property investing. I was very lucky that when I was 18 and I was going off to university, I was on a scholarship. And that basically gave me some income. I was still living at home. And my granny sat me down and said, hey, John, like, 
you're going to buy an apartment. I remember buying a $60,000 apartment in, outside the University of Sydney. And that got me onto the ladder. And then I was very lucky, this is you know, back in the 90s, we were just able to roll that as I earned more income, as that capital gains happened, we could roll into more and more properties. Within a given system, there are people who do better and worse in the system. And typically, it's time in market, not trying to time the market. You know, when it comes to property, the earlier you or your parents can get in, the better off you'll be. But I think, when I think from a societal level point of view, I'm solving for the median person. Because there'll be people who are ahead of the curve, either through you know, the wealth they have or the, the nuances of the moves they make. But I'm thinking like the average person in Sydney in 30 years' time, where are they going to be living? Home ownership has gone down from 73% to 63%. Are we happy to be 30 or 40%, you know, in, in a few years' time, in, in generations' time? Are we happy to have people who can't afford to live in Sydney and are living somewhere else? And I think that's why government and policy has such a big role to play. John, thank you so much for today. Uh, an incredible conversation. Your insights have been absolutely amazing. So I'm really looking forward to sharing your journey and your insights and experiences. So thank you. Thanks, Harry. And, and for those who've made it to the end of the podcast, thank you for listening. Thank you for indulging me with uh, a bit about myself and hopefully it was somewhat useful. And if it's useful, please feel free to reach out. I think one of the things I love about real estate in Australia, it's such a relationship-driven business. And, you know, in many, many of my customers, I've met leaders, I've met mentors, people to learn from. And so, you know, keen to extend that to any of you who've, uh, who, are, who are listeners of Harry and on your own journey, property or otherwise. Thanks again, John. This is the end of the episode. I hope you've enjoyed listening to John's stories and experiences and have gained an insight into how he has gone building both himself and the respective companies he's led over the years. For myself, the standout is the value and emphasis on making good hires and nurturing your team to achieve big results. John, thank you again for sitting down and speaking with me. I thoroughly enjoyed listening to your stories and putting this episode together. To my listener, if you've enjoyed what you've heard today, please take a second to rate this podcast on your favourite listening platform. If you're so inclined, please also leave a comment to let me know your thoughts. Well, that's it from me for this month. I'd like to thank you again for tuning in and I look forward to sharing the next month's episode with you in the coming weeks. Take care and bye for now. Thanks for listening to Business and Property Development. Join us next month for more insights from people whose business is property. To subscribe and listen to other episodes, head over to businessandpropertydevelopment.com.au.